I was never a big P.E. fan in elementary school, I got to admit. Maybe you're like me. The reason I wasn't is because of that old schoolyard pick. You know, where they picked two captains and they had to select their teams. And I had the unique distinction many times in my young life of being the last one picked. Do I have any <laughs> others? Yes. Yes, that was me. I wasn't much of an athlete. I probably still am not much of an athlete. No, there's no probably. Not much of one, but nonetheless, we try hard. But, you know, you kind of get over that and you get up confidence, particularly as you get up into the teenage years and you start, well, thinking there's some pretty girls around. And maybe if you're like me, there was one that you had a bit of a crush on, cheerleader, blonde, popular, thought, you know, how am I ever going to meet this young lady? And till it happened that we were in the same chemistry class together. And I don't know if you know this, but sometimes the people that aren't good at sports are really good at chemistry. <laughs> Happens that way every once in a while. I was one of those. And she sat near me, and we had a few conversations, much to my delight, to the point that I would even be able to help her on homework, much to my further delight, until I was emboldened to the point that I thought, here is my chance. I will write her a note and ask her, will you go with me? And so one day in chemistry, I got there before her and slipped it onto her desk. And she came in and opened said envelope with that question. And the answer was given abundantly clear when she tore <laughs> the paper up. It took me a few years, but I got over that, went on to college. <laughs> and in college, second semester... Of my uh, sophomore year, a young lady came into the campus ministry's office who I thought was particularly cute. And over the course of the semester, I was trying to work up the nerve to ask her out. And it, that, that replay from chemistry kept playing, and it became harder and harder until I heard that coming up was the spring formal for our school. And the spring formal was going to be held... At, somewhere on Palm Beach, and it was going to be a musical. The music man was going to play. And so I finally, one day in the cafeteria, got up the nerve to ask her to go to the spring formal or banquet or whatever they called it back in those days with me. She said, well, you're a little late. A gorgeous blonde has already asked me to go. And then she laughed and laughed and laughed. And then she said, no, I'll go with you. The blonde was my sister. <laughs> so I, I made it past that one. thought, okay. But, but, you know, it was like, if you're like me, you've had moments in your life where you felt pretty, shall we say, rejected. Maybe it wasn't as an elementary schooler. Maybe it wasn't even in a romantic situation. Maybe it was as you got out of high school and you were looking for that one college that you had set your sights on. And you had sent in the applications and you would check the mail day after day after day, hoping against hope that that letter would come that would say you're in, only to get that letter that says we regret to inform you. Or maybe you were in the workforce at some point and, and in that situation, 
you were up for a promotion and you thought you had all the credentials, all the bona fides. You were a shoe-in for that position only to be called into the boss's office and told, sorry, we had to give it to someone else. Or maybe even on a more personal level, in a relationship, after uh, you popped the question and she said yes or he, he asked you and you were married and after a period of time, that one that you had committed your life to, that you loved, looked you in the eye and said, I'm sorry, I don't love you anymore. Rejection takes a lot of forms. And in our lives, we probably face some sort or kind of rejection an awful lot with various degrees of emotional impact. But that word rejection is sort of our taking off point today. Because we find in the scriptures, well, a stone that was, in fact, rejected. Psalm chapter 118 is where we'll start today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab them, open Psalm 118. Most of the verses will be up on the screen. We're going to take a journey to a few places today. But in Psalm 118, it's a fascinating psalm, actually, in and of itself. It begins with words that you may be familiar with. You've heard them at places in in songs. Um, But we're not going to concern ourselves with that. We're going to go a little bit later. This psalm was used in worship. This psalm would have been used as the pilgrims would approach the temple in Jerusalem. They would have this antiphonal chorus of the the priests would call and the people would answer and the priests would call and the people would answer. You see, if you were to read through the psalm a little later, they make it to the very gate of the temple. They're about to go in to worship at this place where God has revealed himself and called them apart. And then kind of a departure from that tone of worship comes these words beginning in verse 22 where it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. For those pilgrims going into the temple, that word would hold some impact for them when they thought, about rejected stones. They as a people, the people of Israel had in their history had probably felt rejection time and time and time again. They were not and have not been in many times and in many ages those who were admired by the rest of the world, often looked down on, often persecuted or or even overrun by foreign powers. And this temple, this place where God came to dwell, the symbol of his presence and blessing for them in their capital city was for them a reminder that though the rest of the world may have rejected them, God had called them to himself as a special people. They became, in the words of the psalmist, the rejected stone that became the chief cornerstone or the capstone as the NIV translates it. Now we use cornerstones a little differently in our time. If you're familiar with buildings in modern days, you often see cornerstones. They're usually engraved with some dedication. Often inside that stone is a time capsule, which is rough because, you know, to get to the time capsule, you've got to break the stone. So, you know, I don't know how that exactly works, but nonetheless, they'll do that. But, but in those days, 
before the modern building methods, the cornerstone was vitally important. And you may be familiar with this more than I. But as I understand it, that stone was placed and it became the guide for the rest of the building. The size of the stone would determine, in fact, how large the building could be. The, the shape of the stone was vitally important. The level and the smoothness of the sides directed all of the rest of the stones that would be put in place. And the wrong cornerstone that wasn't truly vertical could result in a building that leaned or wasn't truly level could result in all sorts of problems down the road. It was a huge thing to fit, pick the right cornerstone. Without the right cornerstone, the building failed. And for Israel... They became, in God's plan, the cornerstone of the salvation of the world. In fact, from the very beginning, as he called Abraham out, he, he indicated to Abraham that he would bless all the nations of the earth through him. And he built for himself this people, and he put them in the land, and out of them was to come the Messiah. In fact, one of the last phrases that we read in Psalm 118 takes us forward to the days of the Messiah, when it says in Psalm 118, 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That psalm was quoted, you may recall, on the occasion of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As the crowds lined the streets and as Jesus came in to the city, one of the things they shouted was, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Because of that, because of the crowds that came, because of the fact that his popularity had continued to surge over the course of his ministry, he had made, well, more than a few enemies. And in fact, some of them were the very religious leaders of this temple that the pilgrims would use this psalm in worship as they approached. And when we fast forward to Mark chapter 12, we see, actually in Mark chapter 11 is the story of the triumphal entry, The end of Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes into conflict with these religious leaders. And they ask him a very pointed question. They want to know, by whose authority does he do the things he's doing? By whose authority could he come into Jerusalem in a symbol of victory? By whose authority could he receive the adoration of the crowds? By whose authority could he go into the very temple courts and clear them and cleanse them? of all the things that were happening there. And Jesus, well, what does he often do when you ask him a question? He asks you another question. He says, okay, here we go. Let's do it this way. I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And here's my question. My question is John's baptism. Was it from heaven or not? Good question. Important question, yes? Some of the very people that had lined the streets had been baptized by John and looked up to John the Baptist. They knew of his death and mourned the loss of this prophetic figure in Israel. And the priests and leaders, they were, well, they were stuck because we're privy to a little bit of their conversation. If we say his baptism is from heaven, how do we explain the fact we didn't support him? And if we say his baptism isn't from heaven, it's just some manufactured thing, they're going to be mad at us. So here's our best answer, Jesus. I don't know. We don't know. 
We're, we can't say. And so Jesus basically gives them this answer. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The last verse of chapter 11. But then chapter 12, right on the heels of that, to this same group of people, Scripture says, he then began to speak to them in parables. The them being the religious leaders who ask him the question. And what is the parable that he tells them? A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented out the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. Now let me just connect a dot to you here that we may not see because we're not as familiar at times with things that a Jewish person would be. If you were to open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 5, you would see a whole passage that was God's love song to his vineyard. And it says God planted a vineyard. And guess what he did? He uh, put a wall around it. And he dug a pit for a wine press. And he built a watchtower. And this passage in Isaiah chapter 5 is particularly pointed at the people of Israel as God's vineyard. So when Jesus starts the parable this way to religious leaders who had rememberized the Old Testament, they knew what he was saying. There was no question at this point that it was a very pointed address to the very leaders who had posed the question to him. They knew, and their probably antenna went up. Where's he going with this? What's going to happen here? Verse 2. He says, he goes on and he says, At harvest time, he, meaning the owner of the vineyard, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this was normal because here's a little Levitical thing that maybe we don't also get. You can own a vineyard, and often, as the landowner, you would let it out. You would allow stewards to care for it. But to maintain your ownership in any piece of land for agriculture, you had to annually get some of the produce from it. That was sort of your connection to the land. If you didn't take any produce from it, the people that tended it could then say, legally, this is our land, not the owner's. So it would be normal for a landowner. It doesn't have to be a lot of it. It could be just some stray uh, pieces of fruit or, or, or vegetables or whatever was produced on it. It doesn't have to be a certain portion. It just has to be something. So the landowner is not necessarily coming in and asking for everything. He's just asking for that small portion that demonstrated he was actually the owner of this vineyard. And so he sent his servant to do that. But they seized him, verse 3, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Can you imagine? I mean, these folks, they were, they were pretty serious about this vineyard. They knew, maybe, what I just explained to you about how the law worked, and maybe part of their thinking was, hey, this is one way we can take this for ourselves if we just refuse to give any of the produce to the owner. And so not only do they refuse to give produce, but they do person after person they, they just treat horribly violently until verse 6 he only had one left to send a son whom he loved he sent him last of all saying they will respect my son but the tenants said to one another this is the heir come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours they may have actually thought some scholars speculate 
that the, the owner had died. That the only reason he would possibly send his son is because his son was coming to sort of lay claim to his father's property. That would be the only logical thing. So if the father's dead and we kill the son, then there's no one left to claim it. So these guys are, are quite, well, I was going to say, you know, hell-bent, but it's church, so I probably shouldn't. Verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, we just read that, come let's kill him and the errands will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Which makes sense. Wouldn't that be a natural reaction of someone that was treated this way and had his son treated this way? And then Jesus adds this, haven't you read this scripture, the one we just read from Psalm 118, the one that for the Jewish nation identified them as the one the wor- world rejected, but God held as his special possession, the one that they saw showing them special place and special use in God's ultimate plan. Jesus uses this exact same verse not to praise them, but to really make his point that he's told this parable about the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in, his, uh, in our eyes. Verse 12, this tells you what I said after verse 1. They knew what he was saying. None of this escaped them. They knew how pointed this parable was when they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Fascinating, isn't it, that for Israel to have as part of their regular worship, kind of their hymn book, that song which would accompany certain festivals and certain occasions where they would approach the temple in worship to call out these words, to note their special place as God's unique people, only to have the Son of God come and turn the tables on them. I mean, the parable, in many ways, is not that hard to figure out. It's pretty straightforward that these people, Israel, were to mine the vineyard, that God had selected them, that he had uniquely worked in their history to appoint them and to use them to be a channel of blessing to the world. But somehow, as is our human nature, they took that privilege, that opportunity, and turned it inward so that their focus became not how can we, by what God has given us, bless others, but instead how can we make sure that we maintain our own position, our own standing, our own special blessing with God at the expense of the rest of the world. After all, how has the world treated us? We don't want to open our doors to them. Rather, we want to make sure they're very much kept outside. The whole of Israel's history had become increasingly isolated and and in some ways increasingly arrogant about their special place with God. And throughout their history, God had sent messengers to them. God had sent people to say to them, listen, you've got this wrong. This is not what you're about. The prophets would come. 
and they would offer blessings, and often the prophets would be at the very least ignored, if not mistreated. God used judgment from other nations, a divided uh, nation of Israel taken off first the northern kingdom by Assyria into captivity, then the southern kingdom by the Babylonians into captivity. And yet still they, they didn't seem to register the message of God, that this wasn't about them, it was about God's ultimate purpose. And then when finally God sent the messenger that he thought, surely they can't ignore my own son, the Messiah, the promised one, when he would walk among them. Yes, just a few days earlier, they had praised him on the road in Jerusalem, but it wouldn't be too long later that the cries of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would turn to crucify him. Crucify him. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus, the Son of God that Israel rejects, will become the chief cornerstone. The key cog in what we know of as this thing we call the church. In fact, these words weren't lost. In Acts chapter 4, we see Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, one of the disciples of Jesus, arrested for preaching the gospel, brought in front of the religious leaders, and they ask him a question, a question eerily reminiscent of the same question they asked Jesus in Mark 11. By whose authority and under what name Do you do these things? They had just healed a man. Sounds a lot like what they asked Jesus, right? John the Baptist. Why did he do that? How did he? Was that really from God? Peter. By whose authority? And what does he say? Well, Peter, at that point, wasn't one to shy away. And in Acts chapter 4, he's pretty bold. I don't think I have this this in the the slideshow, but I'll read it for you nonetheless. In Acts chapter 4, as he answers the, the religious leaders, he would have them know. This will come in handy, I promise. He would have them know that it was, verse 9, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple or ask how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. You notice how often they put that little barb in there? You know, I don't want to miss that. Whom you crucified, oh, by the way, but God raised from the dead. We don't want to forget that either. That this man stands before you healed. He is, meaning Jesus, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I can't help but imagine as Peter sat under their interrogation that he didn't remember that interaction in Mark chapter 11 and hear the echo of that question and bring to his mind the very psalm that Jesus quoted at the end of his parable to make the point of who he was about. In fact, I'm so convinced he didn't miss that connection that I'm going to point to 1 Peter chapter 2 where in his own writing, in his own letter to those early Christians, Jesus in, or excuse me, Peter in verse 4 would say this, as you come to him, meaning Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him. 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, and here it is again, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the capstone. And it's a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes men fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Peter got the point. Peter understood what Jesus was saying. As he comes out of that same Jewish tradition, as he has that same background, as he learned those same scriptures, as he learned the history of his people and knew their suffering at the hands of so many, as he was taught that they were God's special possession, God's chosen people, he also saw in Jesus the fulfillment of all that God was about in setting aside Israel. And he placed his faith in that living stone, as he says in verse 4, once dead, whom you crucified, he says in Acts, but God raised from the dead and calls us who follow living stones built together into this house, this building. This church, not the building, not the structure, but who we are. As we live out our faith, in this Messiah. The question is, is is that the cornerstone of our lives? I believe it was St. Augustine who writes, talks, I don't know how you'd actually say it, about what he calls the pyramid of priorities. Maybe it sounds like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it was before the psychological things that would come there. And, And his idea is you can take the six things that are most important to you. Pick six. And maybe in your mind you would name things like, well, God, because we're in church, right? Got to start there. Family, we're good with that. Health, that would be important to all of us. A career, vocation, some sort of job. Uh, Financial stability might be important to us and and our reputation how people view us our standing in the community those are can we all kind of agree those are six good ones i'm not saying those are the only six are you okay with me saying those are six i got the mic right so if you had to take two away what would you take away i got six what am i going to take away maybe i'd take away well maybe i'd start the other way what won't i take away i won't take away my faith in god i won't take away my family I won't take away my health. That leaves my occupation, my reputation, and financial security. Maybe I'll say, I'll keep financial security. So, Or no, I'll keep occupation because that sort of makes. So I'm throwing away my, my standing in the community, my reputation, and my financial security. He says, okay, now that you're down to four, take two more away. Take two more away, really? I'm pretty good with these four. These are good. I like my faith, I like my family, I like to be thought of as healthy, I like you know, the fact that I, I like my vocation. I guess if I had to take 
probably vocation, my job would be the first, I, God, family, and health. And, and, and maybe I'd take away health for me if it meant my family was okay. So now I'm down to God and family. And then what's the next step? Take away one more. And here's what we think. We're like, that's not going to happen. I mean, we don't live in that kind of a world where we have to make those kind of choices. We don't have to come to that point where it happens, where we have to make that. Here's what I would suggest. We make those kind of choices every day, whether we recognize it or not. With every decision we make, we have a hierarchy of priorities that we decide in that moment what really is the most important, that determines our choice, that determines our action. And while we don't articulate it that way, at some level, that's what we're doing. John Piper puts it another way. He talks about getting to the bottom of your joy. How do you get to the bottom of your joy? It's almost like peeling back the layers of an onion. Let's take something that seems pretty innocuous, that seems pretty simple. I got an A on a test. Everybody like that? Yes. Makes you happy to get an A on a test? So how do you know what is the bottom of your joy? Why does getting an A on a test make you happy? Well, maybe it's because my parents are paying for my education and I got to, you know, keep it up or they're not going to be too happy with me. They'll be proud of me. They'll keep paying the bill. I'll get, keep whatever. Maybe it's you're a people pleaser and you want to please your professors or it's a particular professor you really like and you want them to be enamored of you. But maybe at some point it's really about your future, that you want to get your degree. You want to go on to the next step, maybe a master's or a Ph.D. in a career in that field. And so the A is important. Why it makes you happy is because it's another step toward your chosen field. And so then the question is, well, why is that something that makes you happy? Why do you have that desire to go to the next level of education? Why do you think that particular vocation will bring you joy? Let's pick one. A teacher, let's say. Got any teachers here? No, we do. Or, yeah, a few. Brings you great joy, right? Not really. Uh oh. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Maybe we should pick something else. No. Let's say you want to be a teacher. You want to go on to that next level. Why do you want to be a teacher? What's at the bottom of that thing that brings joy to you that you think if you get to that career, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled? Is it because of someone in your life? that you admire, that also had that vocation? Was it because of maybe a teacher you had as a child that took a special interest in you and made a huge difference in your life and you want to do the same for somebody else? Well, why is that something? Why does taking an interest in another person and helping them bring you joy? What's underneath that desire? And as you peel back all these layers to find what's at the bottom of your joy, Piper says this, you're going to find one of two things. It's going to be either you or it's going to be God. Either you're going to do all of that because it's about you or somewhere when you get to the bottom of that, you're going to find God. Kind of back to those 
things. In other words, you're going to find the cornerstone of your life. You're going to dig down and you're going to see that that's what it is. It's that which sets the direction of your life. It's that which sets the plumb or the level or the size or the, the scope of that which you're pursuing. And you're going to find when you get down to that cornerstone something that will determine a lot about you. Here's what I know about me. I'm less than perfect. I picked these rocks. I've had fun shopping for rocks. These are apparently red lava rocks. You may have known that. I didn't know until I bought the bag. Because they're, shall we say, not exactly uniform in shape. These would not be the kind of rocks you would choose to set as the cornerstone of anything. Even if you were piling up a bunch of rocks, this would be a hard kind of rock to have as sort of the one that you would build upon because of the irregular size, because there's nothing, at least on most of them that I saw, there's usually jagged edges. There's nothing level about it. There's nothing that would allow it to sit stably. It wouldn't take much for anything you place on top of it to also have a problem being stable. And you know, this rock, if this is the cornerstone of my life, if I am the cornerstone of my life, it probably looks, well, just as misshapen as this. Because I know what's in there. Just like you know what's in there. Hey, just like God knows what's down there. You know what the remarkable thing is? We've sung about it today. We talk about it often. That even though God knows my life in some ways resembles this misshapen rock, he loves me anyway. And he, through the person of Jesus, came and took my place. Because all of these jagged edges, we might say, are representative of the sin in my life. The times I have failed God. And Jesus, who came and lived the sinless life, can be that cornerstone. Because he doesn't have some of these very things that make my life useless to build as the cornerstone of anything. And yet, sometimes in my daily decisions, when faced with this or him, I choose this. And I reject, just like the Jews did, just like the religious leaders did, just like whoever else you want to point out in history does, I reject the very one who makes the invitation that I can build my life securely upon him. In fact, when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, the, the longest continuous sermon we have recorded in Scripture, how did he end? Do you remember? He tells a story. 
about building a house. And you can build your house upon the sand, and the winds and the rain come and beat against that house, and great was its fall. Or you can build your house on the rock. Dare I say the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And the winds come, and the rain beats against that house. And the house on the rock, according to my children's song, stands. I hope you got a rock on your way in. Because it represents not just me, but I imagine you as well. As we come to our time of response today, in some ways it's much like last week where many of you came and placed your rock at the foot of the cross. And I'm going to invite you to do that again if you want. Not because, I'll say it clearly, not because the preacher said so. Not because the people around you are. Not because if I don't, everybody will wonder why I didn't do it. That's not why I do this. That's not why we're doing this. No, but because in this moment, it seems the appropriate thing to do. Maybe one way of saying to God, I recognize when I've rejected you as the cornerstone of my life and chosen something lesser, and so I place it before you. And thank you for the forgiveness that allows me to receive, again, the stability that my life has to be built on you. Maybe for some of the others of you, you want to take it home. Maybe leaving it here isn't the thing. Maybe it would best serve you sitting on your bathroom vanity or on your dresser in your bedroom or someplace that you might see it when faced with some of those daily decisions to decide what's at the, what's at the bottom of my life. If that's the place you would think it would be best, please take it home. But ultimately, it's not about what you do with the rock that I gave you on your way in. It's about what you do with Jesus. The religious leaders, they thought they had it all figured out. They didn't need this rabble-rousing itinerant preacher that was stirring up trouble inciting the people potentially bringing Rome's wrath upon them they'd rather he just go away quietly in fact if we can shut him up let's arrest him even better as opposed to a guy like Peter who knew the psalm and who heard it on the lips of Jesus and then who himself at least twice that we have recorded in Scripture recalled those words because he understood that was a fitting place to build his life. The question for you is what will you do with he who is the cornerstone? Will you reject him? Or will you turn to him in faith?
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great grace. A grace that says to me, even while I was yet a sinner, that you loved me enough to send your son to die on the cross, paying the penalty for my sin and opening the way for me to know you. Lord, I thank you for that great salvation that you have offered. And if there's someone here today, Father, who needs to know the salvation, even as Peter said, that there's found in no one else except in the name of Jesus, may today be the day they turn to you in faith and find forgiveness and hope. And Lord, for those of us who know you, may we recognize the times, sometimes daily, that we reject you as the cornerstone of our life, that we choose a lesser thing. And may in our realization of those moments of rejection, may we find your forgiveness and your restoration. Lord, we give you now these moments of our invitation, praying in Jesus' name.